You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Uh, if you have your um, Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 25, and we are going to say, as the Japanese say, uh, sayonara to Abraham uh, as, a, as a narrative figure. Um, when, I was, uh, um, when I was young, I have just a, a quick embarrassing confession to you this morning. Uh, when I was probably around 8, eight to 13, um, I had in my mind that I really wanted to be famous. I really wanted to just get on TV. Um, every Friday night, my friends and I would, you know, we'd do spend the night parties and watch TGIF. Uh, it was a lineup with Boy Meets World and Urkel and Full House. And those families just looked so cool. And I was like, man, if I could just be that good looking with that hair gel that JGT has and be part of that family, it would be awesome. And I would have no problems. And, uh, and I don't know, if I feel like if we really got down to it and had some truth serum in the room, I feel like that was in the stream, in the water, you know, back in the 90s. It was like, if you could be like Andrew Keegan, your life would be set. Uh, in, the last, in the last 10 years, um, I think we've all pretty much concluded and seen as a culture in 20 years that uh, being a child celebrity is a disaster, right? It's a life hazard. Uh, it was not what we thought that it was. Okay, so I take all that back. Um, you'll watch, you know, the most recent Justin Timberlake uh, interviews on YouTube, and it's like the highs and lows of the serotonin of being on stage in front of 100,000 people. Like, you're not supposed to do that at 13. Like, you don't know how to cope with that. And the access, you know, to, um, to pleasure, to drugs, to sex, to whatever it is as, as a young celebrity, like, your brain is not wired for that. And you don't know how to navigate that. You don't know how to create boundaries for that. You don't know how to create rhythms. And so it's just... There's no delayed gratification. It's really good. You know, Brene Brown says kids are wired for struggle, so let them struggle. And when kids don't have to struggle to access their goals early on, they miss a major part of the development of childhood. And probably the worst thing, and that's just not for kids, but for all adults included, is when you become famous enough, nobody rejects you. And so your relationships are never really contingent on anything real. They're based on them trying to get in the circle and get you sold and get you into the next thing. And so the kid grows up in an awful, awful situation. Uh, my friend Scholar was telling me about this Beyonce story. Anybody uh, enjoy Beyonce? She's great. Um, his friend works at Cirque du Soleil and, uh, and was in charge of the green room, and you're supposed to take care of Mariah Carey back there. Just make sure that she's happy and nobody, like, breaks in there. And so one time, Jay-Z, and, and, you know, there's a pedigree for this stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you watch, if you read People, which I do from time to time, uh, Jay-Z and, and Beyonce are the queen. They're the king and queen. They're the best. And uh, so this guy, he's... I guess, personable enough, looks like a fun person to talk to, was in the green room, and Beyonce just, what if Beyonce was just like, hey, you, come over here and just take a seat. And I'd be like, is, is Jay-Z okay with this? So he sits down, and she's super sweet, just super nice. Like, um, sometimes I think, you know, we assume certain things about celebrities, and then they're exact opposite, for better or worse. Talked to him for like 15 minutes, and basically told this guy, um, uh, the last thing that you would ever want in your life is to become famous. She was like, if I could trade a trip to Walmart without getting mugged, I would give up what I have in a heartbeat. Now, listen, it doesn't matter how many times celebrities say that, we never believe them, do we? Like, we're like, well, that's easy for you to say because all of my problems revolve around what you have times a billion. You like all the things that I need, you have a hundred of them and I have none of them. And so it's really easy to say. But whether it's, you know, the Jim Carrey quote that said, I wish that everybody was foolish and famous to know for a second that it's awful. Whether it's Michael Jordan in The Last Dance, who's like, 
I quit. I hate this. I don't, I don't want this life. Whether it's Justin Bieber, whether it's any number, Macaulay Culkin, whether it's any number of these stars, their lives and their Instagram and their quotes are telling us fame is not what you think. So a very simple message today just to kind of close up the Abraham thing. And that is this, that the point of Abraham's life was to grow in daily friendship with God. And if we look at all of the rest of the Bible, really the testimony of the Bible is the same as what Justin Bieber is saying, is we're not built for fame, we're built for friendship. So what, is, what, is, what fame is doing is it's creating a critical mass of people that follow you, like you, retweet you, quote you. And it creates a critical mass so much so that if people reject you, they'd be foolish because everybody likes you. That's what happens with the scale of popularity, right? It could be in high school, and it could be with 100 friends or a million friends on Facebook. It doesn't really matter. It is trying to be rejection immune. It is creating a, a critical mass of people that because they like you and celebrate you and because they think you're the goat, that if anybody thinks that you're not what those people are saying, then they're stupid. They're wrong and not you. And so, Chase, so having fame is a thing. I mean, Abraham's famous, and we're talking about Abraham because he's famous, but his life wasn't pursuing fame, and that's a totally, completely different thing. A life pursuing fame versus, versus seeing fame is, is two separate things. But this is what we have as, I think, the takeaway for Abraham's life. If you read the last, you know, if you just got here, if you read the last 25 chapters, or, well, 12 to 25, whatever that is, is that um, Abraham's life is inviting us to friendship with God, which is not just the first equation, which is faith, meeting faithfulness, finding friendship. Abraham trusts God, leaves his home, goes to the next place, and finds out that God protects him in the famine. That's day number one. So faith sometimes meets faithfulness. But Abraham also... Uh, lies about his wife, does not trust the promises of God, and still finds God faithful. So it's the double-sided equation, both that faith finds faithfulness in God and develops friendship, and when you and me are in the depths of our sexual addiction, we still find God's faithfulness and therein find friendship. And that's the part we don't like, and that's why we long for fame, and that's why we want popularity, and that's why we want retweets and affirmations and spots in church and platforms and people to listen to us because we love the idea of faith meeting faithfulness, but we are, we are terrified of the idea of failure, potentially not meeting faithfulness. Tim Keller once said that uh, to be loved and not known is shallow. To be uh, known but rejected is the most painful human experience we could ever uh, experience. But to be deeply known and deeply loved, that is something like the love of God. So love of God is calling us not to fame, but to friendship, to daily walking out the rhythms of life uh, with God. So uh, here's... Um, Here's Genesis 25, and this is an epilogue of Abraham's life. Um, uh, movies do this great. Epilogues are the like, little white text that comes up at the end of the movie where you're like, I wonder what happened to that person. Like, I hope everything turned out okay. Especially for sad movies, you know, like our ones that don't have really happy endings like, you know, Ford versus Ferrari. If you guys have seen that, I won't spoil it for you. But, you know, uh, another movie like Moneyball, which is just on Netflix, great movie, they'll put up a little thing and it'll like tell you what happened at the end and you're interested because you want to make sure that the good guys get the good stuff and the bad guys get the bad stuff. Like, I just, I just want to know that eventually it worked out. You know, that's the idea. And so there's this sort of moral of the story that comes up and that's what's going on here in Abraham's uh, epilogue. We're, we're seeing like what became of Abraham. And verse seven, the Bible would highlight to us as we kind of close up Abraham's life and think about not just the day-to-day, but the macro zoom-out picture of Abraham's testimony. Verse 7 says, Abraham lived 175 years. And then verse 8, then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age. This is what the Bible would say to you and to me, that the point of life is not fame, it's to die a good old age. Good old age is not 175 years old, because I don't know if anyone's going to make it that long. 
But a good old age is, is, a, is a quality, not just a quantity. A good old age is he walked in friendship with God. He, 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 he fulfilled, he, he walked as a complete life, a full life. Maybe not a famous life, but a full life. He got what he was promised from the Lord. And so this is what we're supposed to be taking away as the impression of Abraham's life overall is that he died at a good old age, an old man full of years, and he was gathered to his people. And so, um, and so this is, this is what, what God is saying about Abraham's life is that, um, yes, Abraham's life was a success. Uh, if you look at the epilogue of his life, the good guy got the good thing in Abraham's case because he had faith and sometimes he failed, but God was always faithful. God was always faithful to satisfy him. But more than just successful or famous, the Bible is saying that Abraham was satisfied. It was not just about success, but it was about being able to enjoy the success because how many of you guys know or at least know of somebody that's very successful that is not satisfied? And there's a lot of people that would trade all of their success, maybe that's the Beyonce quote of the morning, for just a little bit of satisfaction. God is saying this, that Abraham was not only successful because God made him successful, but he died a satisfied man. And this is why, because he's a friend of God. And by the way, friend of God doesn't just mean he hangs out with you at cookout and sticks with you through the years. The friendship with God means that Abraham trusted the promises of God, not just the person of God. It was, it was a journey in not just staying connected to God, but being transformed by God's word and transformed by God's promise. This was the very beginning of the relationship. If you remember back in Genesis 12, it says this, I, Abraham, will make you a great nation. So it's more than just hang out with me and I'm going to make your dreams come true or I'll make you famous within the church or something like that. I'll make, you, make sure you're happy and safe and never have any problems. I, I will, I will, I'm not saying that you won't have pain. I will say at the end of it, you will be satisfied. It will be better than fame, and it will be better than even safety. It will be satisfaction. That's what I promise you, a success that, that comes in friendship that leads to satisfaction. And the promise from the beginning of 12 to the end of 25 was always the same. And this is what the Bible is trying to show is that not only was Abraham a success, but the promise in him was a success. And the promise was, in fact, kind of a main character in the story as much as Abraham was. And this is the promise, that I will make you into a great nation, Abraham, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the world will be blessed through you. What we need to see about this passage, uh, for, it to, for it to rest the way that it, it's supposed to rest, the, the way that it's supposed to be written, is that the first two words of each of the stanza of that promise are not thou shalt, but I am. Okay, the first two words of every stanza in this promise is not, this is what you should do. It's that this is what I will do. This is what the friendship with God will look like. Is that Abraham, it's not just in faith, but in failure, I will be faithful. Not just in faith will I make you a great nation, but in failure, I will make you a great nation. I will persist in your life. I will, I will endure through your failures, Abraham, to make you a great name. I will not give up on my promise. And so the main character of this story that drives the narrative forward isn't really even Abraham's decision so much as God's decision and his promise in Abraham's life. It is an I will promise, not a you should or you could or you will or if this or if that or thou shalt. It is an I will promise. And as you trust me, Abraham, the decision is not whether or not you will be successful or not because I am your success. The question is whether or not you will be satisfied in my success or not. So the epitaph of Abraham, the epilogue of Abraham, is going to give us three categories for life. And if you live 70 years in this earth, it's basically saying it's a pie chart for how much time you will choose to live in any of these three categories. So the categories are connected to different wives and offspring. And those three categories are 
the wife Keturah, his concubine, which Abraham was married to several concubines, having several children. And I want to talk about that this morning as a life wandering from the promise. You have a decision to make today and in all of your days. You only have how many Christmases you have left? I don't know. You have a few more Christmases left. A few more Easter's, a few more times with your parents, and that's it. You have a few more moments and breaths on this earth. And the question is not, will God be uh, successful in your life? You are successful. You are successful because he is in you, and he is pursuing you. And if you are in Christ, you are made new in him. And so you are, that, that, that verdict is already established. Your epilogue's already written. You are a success. He is and has made you a great nation, great name, and a blessing to be blessed to other people. The question is, will you be satisfied in it? Is that enough? Do you need to be famous or can you walk as a friend? Is it enough to wake up tomorrow and say the next thing that you need to say to him? So number one is an option to wander from that. Like you don't have to be satisfied with what he gave you, but it would be better that we would. There's another portion of life that I think he's inviting us to in the paragraphs of this scripture that say that you can live your life where the primary posture of your life is to spend time trusting the promise instead of wandering from it. To be enough, to, to, to believe that he's enough and you're enough and not have to be famous or promoted or known or whatever it is, rich or powerful or whatever it is, ambition that wakes us up in the morning, that robs us of friendship, that keeps us a mile wide and an inch deep and, it, and acquaintances without relationship and really friendship or, or false friendship without any fear of rejection because that's where friendship really is, is at the place of rejection when somebody accepts us when they could have rejected us. So what does it look like to live in that place? And then lastly... Probably the worst place of all is thinking we're doing life with God, but actually just doing it on our own. And that's just called religion. That's called making up our own promises and then going after them and saying God made them up. And that's three categories. And it's the end of the day. God's successful in you. He is a success. Jesus is successful. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's established your success in, in, in him um, by the way of the death and the resurrection. The question is not are you successful, but will you be satisfied in his success? All right, here we go. Abraham had taken another wife whose name was Keturah. Verse 2. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan was the father of Sheba and Dedan. The descendants of Dedan were Asherites, the Letushuites, the Lemonites. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, Elda, and all these were descendants of Keturah. Verse 5. Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac, but while he was still living... He gave gifts to his sons, to his concubines, and sent them away from his son Isaac, the land of the east. So the Bible is, um, is tough. I mean, this is why I want to talk about how to read the Bible and, and how we find context for the Bible. Because uh, it's pretty hard to read it and not get pretty offended at the fact that um, uh, Abraham has apparently taken several wives as concubines, as slaves, and God's not said anything about it. Um, there was somebody actually in church one day asked me the other day why it is, you know, that the Bible seems to glaringly look over some of these things. And, and the only thing I could tell you at this point for the amount of time that we have is um, the, uh, God did not create divorce, but divorce is in the Bible. Uh, God did not create, you know, slavery, but slavery is in the Bible. And what we have in a lot of these Old Testament texts is God, is God reckoning his redemptive plan inside of a fallen world and trying to figure out how he's going to fulfill his promise to make his church a blessing to the world to bless the nations, to redeem the, the Genesis story. That's, that's what God is, is working with. And so the reality is, um, you know, like uh, they didn't have welfare back then. And so if a woman is conquered or divorced or is a widow, she's in deep trouble. And a lot of the Bible is trying to deal with that. Deuteronomy is dealing with that. Leviticus is dealing with that. The New Testament is dealing with that. So we don't just have like Walmarts out there that people just go get jobs for $7. Like 
this person, you know, needs help. And I'm not saying that you can justify all the things that go on with whatever the relationship was, because we don't know the details of the relationship between Keturah and Abraham, but the argument could certainly be made that her fate in the family of Abraham was much better than being wandering around the wilderness and walking away with sons with an inheritance. This might have been, maybe, I, I did the calculations. Did you know that the minimum wage in South Carolina is $7.29? $7.29. If you work 40 hours a week, you're making $15,000 a year. So the question becomes on us, are we treating our widows and orphans and poor people better or worse than they, they were? Just a question for thought. Anyways, what should strike us as alarming is the ability for Abraham, or really anybody, to live in the place of the promise, but still wander from the place of the, of the or live in the place of the blessing, but still wander from the place of the promise. What Abraham has created, what Abraham has created uh, with his marriage to Keturah is, is an area, a space of safety, which is not quite below the area of rebuke, but certainly not to the level of the promise. He has, he has showed us in the narrative of the scripture a space that is, is not going to get you in trouble. Uh, it's not going to get you divorced. It's not going to get you losing your job or to question your salvation. It'll just waste a lot of time. So I saw a quote the other day. It was a great quote. It said, look at, look at your stuff. Go home. Look at all your stuff. And think, for yourself for, think to yourself for a second. All that stuff used to be money before it was clutter. And before it was money, it was time. And so what Abraham has done with this concubine is he's divided his inheritance. And God didn't tap him on the shoulder and didn't strike him with a bolt of lightning or smack him upside the head. He just let him waste time. And it should be alarming to us, like, there are plenty of options out here, especially in America, where we are not getting rebuked, but we're also far from running for the promise. There's a whole territory of life that it's not about heaven and hell, it's about wasted time. And we won't find out until the very end. That was a gigantic waste of time. And it was not satisfying. It did not satisfy me. And in the end, it only served to divide my interest, divide my time, and divide the inheritance away from what my promise was supposed to be. So I love what Kyra says, right? We think about God and, and really just relationship, because he's talking about marriage in this respect. But we think about God as a pass-fail. I'm either in heaven or I'm in hell, right? I'm either doing great, or I'm getting struck by lightning, one or the other two. But God's not a business. He's a family, right? So you have a wife, and there's plenty of things you can do that won't get you divorced, but also won't ever build friendship in your marriage, and you won't know it till it's too late. So, so friendship with God isn't a pass-fail. It's just a how much. How much do you want to invest? How much do you want to just watch Netflix? Like, you're free to do that, He's not angry with you, right? That's, that's what we know. And we, we, loved, we would rather operate in slavery because that means I would know and I can pass, fail, and manipulate the system. He's like, well, that's not what this is. This is friendship. I can't force a husband to spend time with a wife and actually care. I can't force a wife to actually listen to her. Like, I can't force that to happen because it's a relationship. It's not a business. So before you is a decision. How much will we spend on the promise and how much will we spend on the wandering? He's created a space for you to reject him or to maybe not reject him but to wander and to watch a lot of Netflix, you know, and just, you can go as many vacations as you want, as many as you want. It would just be, is it satisfying, though? Like, does it have purpose? Does it have meaning? Are you headed somewhere? And the thing about it is, like, we always want 25%. That's a psychologist, right? Everybody in here wants 25 more percent of their income. There's always something more, right? There's always that extra, I couldn't just have one wife with, like, 12 kids. I have to have four wives, like, what is that? Why? I mean, men in the room would, you know what I mean? Like, we're, you know, like, 
there's this kind of thing where it's like, we always have to have more. Why? Because, because we don't trust that in failure, we'll meet faithfulness. We don't trust that when they see the real you, that he'll really accept you and that they'll really accept you. So we need to create an ongoing economy of fame around us and success and, and approval and all the other things of critical mass that keep us from that painful place of potentially being found out. And that's where it is. That's where it is. And so we have an opportunity to invest or not. That's the choice. We can spend some of our pie chart there or not. Verse 7, Abraham lived 170, oh wait, verse 18. Then, uh, nope, I'm lost here. Um, good old age, no, there we go, because I read it before. Verse 7, there it is. I'm rereading it now. Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died a good old age. An old man and full of years, and he went and uh, he was gathered to his people. And then, verse 9, his sons Isaac and Ishmael were born to him in the cave of Machpelah, near Mamre, in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hittite. The field Abraham had bought from the Hittites, there Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived in Beer Lahai Roy. So this whole portion of scripture from 711, 7-11, there you go, is celebrating the space in Abraham's life that Abraham decided to trust the promise. Abraham was a stargazer. He was told from a very young age in his faith to look up at the stars and to remember that even though his wife was barren, those stars represented his descendants and his inheritance and that the land that was occupied by people that were 10 times more powerful than him, that land would be inherited, not, not, just, not taken by force, but be inherited by, uh, by faith. And Abraham lived out his days like that as though those things were true. The Hebrew, Hebrews will give us a commentary on that. Like, he bought a burial plot for his wife at the full price of 400 shekels, which was four times the amount of what that was, because he believed in God's economy, not the Canaanites. And he wanted his bones buried, like Joseph, like Jacob, like all the other patriarchs, buried in the promise, because to be buried in the promise was to be buried with Christ. And this is what Abraham did. This is how he lived his life. And there were portions of his life where he believed, he believed that although, that although the promise is impossible, nothing is impossible with God. This is the picture that we need to get of the promises of God in our life. If the promises of God are possible with a little bit more wisdom, then they're not the promises of God. The, pom- the promises of God smell and look and act and create and provoke and create unsettledness in us because they are impossible. The, the picture, the illustration of Genesis of the promises of God is a barren woman beyond her age having a baby. To what degree is it possible for somebody to find salvation in Jesus Christ to the same possibility that a virgin can have a baby? To the same possibility that a a Lazarus that's been buried for three days can get resurrected and to the same degree that a barren woman beyond her years can have a baby? That is how life happens. I don't know if you've ever been to a delivery room before. There's lots of screaming and and yelling going on there, okay? And there's labor. There is labor, labor to life. There's ways that we care for life. There's ways that we give birth to life. There's ways that we carry life for nine months, but we don't bring life. God, God brings life. God brings life. And so this is the remembrance. Like, we are supposed to read this story and remember that the promises, the promises are received by us, but they're not created by us. And that our position with at least some portion of our life can be and should be to trust, on, trust in him. So here, here's where we need to go now. The question becomes, I never got drug out to a field to look at the stars and told that I should go live in the Gaza Strip and I should have all my babies named Isaac and that I will be a great nation with a great name. That's just not my promise. And so therein lies a really big gap about what are the promises of God. Because somebody will pull you aside one day and be like, you should just trust in the promises of God. And then we should be like, well, what are they? 
you know? And it depends on who you're asking. Some of you will say, well, the promises of God means you're never going to be sick, or the promises of God means that, you know, you're always going to have a job, or the promises of God means you're going to be famous. Like, it just sort of depends on what you insert into that question. But if we were to take the scripture for what it's worth and really look at that passage and try and ask the Lord what would be the New Testament, uh, the New Testament um, parallel to what that promise is today in 2020, he would probably lead us to Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven has been given to me. Therefore, verse 19, go like Abraham went. Go leave your home. Uh, go leave your prejudices. Go leave your assumptions and premeditative values. Leave all your presuppositions. Go, and I'll show you where you're going to go next. Just take the first step. Just like Abraham. This is what Jesus would say to us in 2020. And make disciples, not descendants. Because Ishmael died one day, and so did Isaac, right? These are physical life, but he's, he's saying, because of the Holy Spirit, because I have all authority, you're not making descendants with Sarah. That story's already been told. You're making disciples. You are, you are doing the impossible task of, of leading people from spiritual death to spiritual life. That's your Isaac. So of all the promises of God, there's 600 promises, like two of them have to do with money. I promise you, the promises of God do not have to do with money. And they really don't have to do with you and me. They have to do with him. And they have to do with the kingdom of heaven coming here. That's our promise. Do we want to be satisfied in that or not? So go and don't make descendants, make disciples. You're going to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you're not going to name them Isaac. You're going to name them in Jesus' name. Because they grew up with all sorts of names cast at them from their family. And their family of origin. And their socioeconomic status. And so did you and me. And we have an opportunity to live out that name. You know, the friendly one. The cute one. The hot one. The stupid one. And then he says, no, you know what? Why don't you go find them, lead them from death to life, put them in the waters of baptism, and then name them in my name. The Father's name, the Son's name, the Spirit's name. This is where we are. This is, this is what he's asking us in 2021, to rename people in Jesus' name. And then it says, to teach them what real blessing is. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the famous, the CEOs, the strong the winners, nope. Blessed are the peacemakers. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded. And then what you're supposed to say after you read that passage is, dude, that's impossible. That's impossible. Have you talked to anybody? They hate church. They think that church is so stupid. They, the last thing that they want to do on Sunday is go to church. That sounds so religious and backwards and old-fashioned and non-progressive. It's like they're so sick of it. Like that's, that's so impossible. And then he says, how do you think Abraham felt? It's supposed to be impossible because it's not a thou shalt, it's an I will. What's he say? Verse, uh, 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 oh dang it, I didn't even copy it through. I'll paraphrase it. Verse 21, he says, not thou shalt, he says, I will be with you until the end of the age. This is not a thou shalt, this is an I will. This is a Isaac miracle. You, you are actually anointed and empowered to lead people from death to life, rename them in Jesus' name, and teach them what real blessing looks like from the Sermon on the Mount. That is your blessing. That is your promise. And you're not doing it. He is. You know, like, we should all be thankful. When we were born, I didn't do any work to be born. I was born in Hong Kong, and I don't remember a thing of it. I just popped out. Right? But mom remembers it because love has labor to it, right? And birth involves pain. But if, if I don't remember the pain that it cost me to have my physical life, and I didn't partake in the pain that caused me to have physical life, 
it really makes me ask the question, who is the one that participated and had the pain for my spiritual life? Jesus says that if you want to, if you want to um, live eternal life, you have to be born again. And somebody had to suffer pain for that. Somebody had to die for that. Because we didn't do it, he did. And so our job is not to come up with some slick campaign or make church more fun or more efficient. It's to trust him for it. Is friendship enough? Is friendship enough for your satisfaction? And is friendship enough for your success? Is, is getting up in the morning and saying the next thing to him and listening to what he says, is that enough to trust him for it? Is that enough to believe him for it? That becomes the question. Some of our life will be spent wandering from the promise. Some of our life will be spent trusting the promise. And some of our lives will be spent um, uh, taking the promise into our own hands. I've been thinking about, um, you know, the motel ministry. And I didn't go last time, but... I think that the discussion that we're having this morning is littered all over it because impossible things are happening over there. Like, we've gone from resistance, you know, and the first few times, I mean, we have different numbers of people coming down for food. We got this one kid that, like, wants Dana to, like, live in the motel now because Dana's, like, apparently the Mary Poppins of the ministry. But there was deep heart prayer the last time is what I heard. And there was a meeting with the Lord. And we didn't do that. Like, we didn't labor for that. That was the Lord. Like, he, he set that up. It's an I will. And so here's the thing. If the church were to become obsessed with fame the way the world was, we'd have to have really good-looking preachers. They'd have to say some really slick stuff. Like, they'd have to be, like, male models, and they'd have to have $800 shoes. If we, if, if we, if we believed, if we believed that the Great Commission wasn't possible, then we'd have to do it on our own. So we'd come up with a really slick program, and everybody would feel really good about it, and it actually wouldn't be measured by the obedience of the individual people. It'd be, uh, it'd be measured by the association of the person to the brand. Because we don't have enough people to disciple, so we've got to disseminate a brand. And so it's not like, this is what I did. It's like, this is what Pastor What said. This is what this movement did. This is what this song said. This is what this believer, you know. And then we get divided, which is what happened in Corinthians, because it comes about association rather than transformation. And everything has to be slick. And then the pastor breaks down because he can't handle that. And he has an affair, again, right? Because we've created a fame system. And it's not just the pastor's fault. It's our fault. Because we don't want to get rejected. So we'd rather have fame than friendship. And so we have to get promoted. We got to get close to the pastor. And we want to like do the right thing so we're on the right team and we know somebody that knows God. Right? So that's what happens when we fall in love with fame and we believe that the promise is ours to keep. It's not. But if we were to, this is what the promise is. If we were to get up every day and just go talk to kids at the motel, it wouldn't even take but two weeks and they'd be ready for the kingdom of heaven. You don't need a conference. Just be a friend. People are not sick of the gospel. They're sick of preachers. And they don't want famous people. They want friends. So that's my, that's my takeaway from this whole thing in the middle section, is that, uh, is that it, uh, people don't need famous people. They need friends of God to be friends with them. This is what they're looking for. They're looking for you to be talking to them and not have a double agenda for them, not have any strings. You ever just talk to somebody and then you're like, oh, you wanted me to join your business plan. Like, that's the most awkward thing ever. 
right? Because they're not being a friend. It alienates the relationship. So what he's saying is just be a friend. That's enough. All you have to do is love the one in front of you and then repeat. And you will see the kingdom of heaven come because you don't do it. He does. I will make you a great nation. I will make you a great name and I will bless you. That's the promise. How much time will we spend wandering from that or trusting in it? Because we were not made to be famous. We were made to find people that are walking in their spiritual journey and just loving them and supporting them enough and encouraging them that they would take the next step with you as a friend. Now, there's a third category, and this is maybe the worst category, and that is when we think that we're doing life with God, but really we're making him up in our own mind. We're making him in our image. Verse 12, this is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Ishmael, whom Sarah's slave, Hagar, the Egyptian, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael listed in order of their birth. And I'm not even going to read them because I'm just going to do a bad job. Verse 16, these were the sons of Ishmael, and these are the names of the 12 tribal rulers according to their settlements and camps. Ishmael lived 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and then he was gathered to his people. His descendants settled in the area from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt, as you go toward Asher. And they lived in hostility towards all the tribes related to them. So the third category of Abraham's life, he has three sets of descendants. And the third category is the story of Ishmael, where Abraham and Sarah got tired of waiting on the promise, so they expedited God's plan by taking it into their own hands. And so Abraham slept with a slave girl in order to have the baby, even though God told him that the baby was not going to come you know, from another line. It was going to come from Sarah's. So it represents Abraham's impatience and lack of trust. It was failure. It was met by faithfulness because he blessed Ishmael as he was sent away and blessed him as a great nation, but it still represented wandering and mistrust of the promise. And so Ishmael, as we read earlier in Galatians 4, represents, in a way, a form of religion. It's a form of trying to do spiritual things with only human terms. It's trying to manifest spiritual results with human efforts. You could do that personally or you could do that corporately, but there's a difference between what Kyra did in pushing out the baby, and the baby. You can't make the baby. The baby is, is God. God makes the life. God makes the fruit. We don't make love, joy, peace, peace patience, gentleness, you know, self-control. We don't do that. Like, we trust him. We keep in step with the spirit, but he's the one that can create fruit, and we can't. So, here's the thing. We live in the South. Religion is a dirty word. It's the, it's the most easy thing that I could get up in any denomination right now and be like, Christianity is relationship, not religion. But here's the trick. You can make a religion about anything. And so we have the privilege of seeing our parents grow up. And it's easier to see the, what the speck in somebody else's eye than the log in your own, right? So that's the problem we deal with. And we are upset because our parents acted differently on Sunday than they did at home. It's called hypocrisy, right? When you see somebody do something and say something completely different, it undermines your trust in them. And so you say, I don't want to go with the direction they go. And so the church gets hurt because there's a lot of hypocrites in church. And comes to find out there's a lot of hypocrites in the Jesus day as well. But here's the thing. Uh, religion is not a denomination. It's fakeness. So you could be religious with being a Presbyterian, or you could be a religious with singing hymns, or you could be religious with khakis or big hair. But that's not the monopoly on religion. Religion is just fakeness. You could be religious with wearing holes in your jeans and being authentic, being passionate in worship, right? You could be religious about showing up to small group and just smiling all the time. That's religion. That's you trying to create 
a spiritual end with human means. And so we're not escaping religion just because we don't go to whatever church or we don't dress a certain way. We don't say, oh, brother, I'll tell you, bless you four times. Just because, you know, because we're not, there's plenty of people that probably have more spiritual life that have gone to Sunday school their whole life than some people that are just, you know, doing, screaming at a conference. And we are blinded by our own narrowness of the way that we see, you know, and interpret human interaction within faith. But the reality is we're not escaping religion just because we don't have a denomination. We can be just as fake with any denomination that we would choose because religion is just when I get to the place of possible rejection, when I get to the place of failure, it's trying to create a fake image. It's washing the outside of the cup rather than seeing the inside of the cup clean. Hypocrisy is not monopolized by any specific religion or denomination. So um, we have an, an opportunity to spend some of our life trying to take instead of trust the promise of God. So the way I would maybe think about it is this way. There's a great uh, Jim Collins quote in the book, Good to Great. And he says that good businesses need to have this posture of both brutal hard facts and unwavering hope for the future. He said that uh, great businesses are never the ones that are like, everything's great and no problems and just sweeping things under the rug because, of course, it's a house of cards and you're building not for the future and the whole thing's going to fall apart. Like, it might feel good because the guy's talking about how awesome it is and you're excited about the salesman that's selling the whole thing, but at the end of the day, it doesn't have any substance, so optimism can't just run a business. But at the same time, he says, you can't just run on brutal hard facts where you're just like eoring things. You do have to have an unwavering sense of future and hope. So the sevens in the Enneagram love the first part, right? Or the optimists in the room. And that just means like, life's a good time, kingdom of heaven come, no sin, we don't have to talk about the problems, let's just keep trucking because our optimism is going to get us where we need to go. And that's legalism, that's religion, because it's not honest, and it's not dealing with the real problem, right? So that's one side of the personality spectrum. The other side is the old Eeyore, it's all sinful, and everything's awful, and we should just all go to heaven now, goodbye. Like, that's, that's I don't know what's that, one or a four, I don't know what you would call that personality, it's the pessimist side. And it has no hope for the gospel. And what, what, what I believe, you know, this, this would say, if, if, if relationship and faith looks like friendship with God, then friendship has to have a margin for the brutal hard facts, but also an unwavering hope for the future. So how do you know if you're in that sweet spot? Is that you're with friends, and you're in your prayer journal, and you're doing daily life with the Lord, and there's a space in your friendships and in your prayer journal for the brutal hard facts with an unwavering hope for the gospel. This has to be the engine. This has to be the metronome of how we're doing real. Because that's real. That's real. Every one of the things that you're struggling with and problems and the conversation that ticked you off and the person that you're worried about or the sin that you can't shake, it's real. And the gospel is not covering up or faking it or being more optimistic or just charging through. And it's also just not admitting defeat. It's, it's seeing where the line between me and God stops. It's coming to the end of myself and finding him there. It's meeting the brutal hard fact with an unwavering hope for the gospel of the future. And if we stay in that space, I think that's where the power happens. I think that's where the friendship happens. I think that's where the realness happens. I think that's where, that's where the Isaac is born. I think that's our role in the process. And so the takeaway is, you have an epilogue as well. And maybe it's in the book of life, and maybe there'll be 17 verses about your life. And it'll categorize maybe. You know, maybe not physically how many kids you had, but spiritually the fruit of your life. And it will categorize three different categories if we were to read this passage and map it onto our life. And that is the years, the Christmases, the moments, the frustrations, the prayer times that were spent wandering from the promise. And he's not mad at you about that. It's just not a good use of time. Right? So he's not going to bark at you. 
And nobody's going to get you in trouble because you pay your taxes and you're not like overtly sinning, but you're also not requiring faith. And you're wandering and you're spinning and you're not satisfied. You still want 25% more. And then there's a second category of trust. And that is, or taking, and that is not having any real spiritual life inside, but doing the exhaustive task that we've all done of trying to pretend like we have it on the outside. And that's also a complete waste of time and actually harmful because it'll cause our kids to see what we do on Sundays versus what we actually do at home and cause a whole nother spiral of, uh, of resisting religion and, and, and salvation. But if we were satisfied, if we trusted him enough, we could come to the place of the brutal hard facts of the gospel that this is impossible without you, but I trust the I will more than, than the thou shalt. And I trust that your hand is holding the promise in me. And so I'm not going to wander and I'm not going to take. I'm just going to trust. So the question is, in your epilogue, how many verses will be designated to each one? How many will be designated? I have a couple of questions. I'm going to invite the band to come forward um, as we consider this. And we are going to have a time for prayer during worship. But I want you to maybe take a, 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 phone, a picture with your phone of some of the following questions. But the question that I would love for you to consider with your prayer partner, with your spouse, with the Lord or with your city group, is that question I just asked. If you had to write an epilogue of your life, or if you sense the Lord wrote an epilogue for you, how many verses would be given to taking, trusting, and wandering? How many verses? So, take a look at this question here. What parts of my life underneath wandering are successful but never satisfied? Go to the place and just think, like, the thing, it's like, it's, it's amazing to me how much you could want a Christmas present and you get it and it, it becomes something completely different once it's in your hand. It's amazing how something can feel so successful but then be so unsatisfying. So the decision there is to continue to go after the next thing that's success without satisfaction or trust him for something different. So number one, where are you never satisfied? Where is there, number two, no need for faith? Completely independent, completely um, autonomous. This would be a wandering life. Number three, what parts are aimed at ease rather than meaning? Ease rather than meaning. You know, sometimes I think that we can back off of our faith and we're saying, well, we're just west- resting or we're just abiding and I don't want to strive and that kind of thing. We want to be careful about striving or about resting and abiding that's really motivated by disconnection rather than connection. It's really motivated by self-preservation than intimacy. Because uh, I think it's John Stott. I can't remember. It was a great blog, but he's like, to the introverts in the room, our introversion is for extroversion. We are not here to introvert. For, we can, we're not here for a secret place, right? So the point is, is like, what part of the thing that I'm seeking is really the Lord's peace or it's just relief from fear or release from stress? We want to be aware of that. But nonetheless, where am I aimed at ease rather than meaning? Number two, the second category, consider taking the promise into your own hands. What parts of your life remain hidden? As we discussed, what parts of your life are shared without the brutal hard facts? And then the counter of that would be what parts of your life are shared without the unwavering hope for the gospel? So this category is just a a contemplation, a thought, and a reflection of where is the outside of my life different from the inside? And where it is that I see the inside ugly of my life, where is it and how can I bring to bear the brutal hard facts of where I am unwavering hope for the gospel into the future of where he's leading me. To go from the land that I am to go to the next place that he's leading me. These are the questions I would think of in terms of taking. Lastly, for trusting. And these would be celebrations. Is there spiritual fruit? Is there, is there, 
is there something in me that looks like the gospel that happens without criticism or approval? Where am I able, where am I seeing spiritual fruit happen in secret, not in public? What am I doing when no one else is around? What am I doing when I am, I'm not going to get negatively or positively reinforced? That's what we would call fruit. Two, what spiritual fruit do I see around my enemies? The gospel love is not just a friendship love. It's an enemy love. It's a foot washing love. And so where am I seeing spiritual fruit that happens around enemies? And lastly, where am I seeing, seeing spiritual fruit that happens around the, the last and the least? Um, I would like you to I would invite you guys to stand and, and we're going to um, close in worship. And, um, and so um, I, uh, I would love, you know, I'm going to have Tom come forward actually. And I know Kyra's not here. So I'm going to have Daniel Kwok, if he'd come forward right over on this side, Mr. Daniel. And so um, I would love to consider some of these um, thoughts today as we respond in worship. I believe that the 175 years of Abraham's life is a testimony that invites us to say to ourselves and to our neighbors that friendship is enough. You are enough and he is enough in you. And there's a pang, um, there's a pang of regret. There's a, there's a, pray, a pang of insufficiency when... Um, when somebody else has a success that we wish we had and when we feel that we're missing out on the party or we feel that God's process isn't happening fast enough, but the friendship invitation says that all that is a lie, that fame is a lie, that, um, that popular success and critical mass of acceptance is a lie, and that all that is required of you is friendship. And so I want to invite you as we worship and respond this morning just to say the next thing. Whatever, whatever is heaviest on your heart, whatever is most meaningful, whatever is true, whatever is real, whatever is real would be worth 10 10 pounds of fame in human terms. Whatever is truly on your heart this morning as you respond, that would be the next step in friendship. So Tom and Daniel are here, and I would love to uh, invite you um, for uh, salvation, for internal um, healing, external healing or even for deliverance, as he would say in the Lord's Prayer, that we would be delivered of evil. If there's anything internal or external, uh, we believe in the God of the slow and of the suddenly. And so as you talk to him, if he says something to you that you want to agree with publicly and you want to partner with somebody in prayer, I want to invite you to come down and to be bold and to take a step and put your faith to action. Um, Let me close this in prayer this morning. Uh, So, Father, I thank you for um, the testimony of Abraham. And um, I am thankful that um, you are a friend making friends, not a celebrity making celebrities. And I'm thankful that it's for your glory that you are making great names and nations, not us. And so we trust you that friendship is enough. And God, I just ask that you would in any way, shape, or form purge and shake this church or really any other church in the capital C church of any spirit of fame or any other thing that would get in the middle of what intimacy really is. I just um, pray that you would just break off um, a, the spirit of performance that would be resting in any of our heads and hearts this morning. Um, I pray that you would uh, ensure and uh, give us a confidence that just knowing you and speaking to you this morning is what you came for and is what you're calling for. And I just, I just pray that you would just establish friends in this house and um, call us in our next step of friendship even this morning. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Thanks again for joining us. 
you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.